you have a copy of the scriptures, let's look together this morning in the Gospel of Mark. We have finally made it to chapter 16. This morning I'm going to read to you the end of chapter 15. We'll start in verse 42, and we'll look together from that point, verse 42 of chapter 15 to verse 8 of chapter 16. This is God's word. Let's, let's hear it together. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on, the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb and they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, They saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go. Tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Let's pray together. Lord, We thank you that as gruesomely beautiful as the cross is, that the story doesn't end there. We thank you that there is also this truth, the reality of the resurrection. We thank you that we get to look at the resurrection this morning. And we ask, Lord, even as we have confessed our sins, and acknowledge before you that we are in desperate need of our Savior. We are in desperate need of his death. Lord, help us to know that we not only in the gospel have his death, but we also have the resurrection. So help us to live, Lord, by resurrection power. Help us to understand the story. Help us to understand what the resurrection means 
And may we be just as astonished and confused and have the right kind of fear, the fear that these women had at the tomb. Help us to understand all that. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to tell you a story as we begin this morning of two men and their encounter. One was named Carl Henry and the other was named Carl Bart. You might not know these men and in a sense it doesn't matter. Here's what you need to know. Carl Bart was a figure who spent the majority, if not the entirety of his career trying to make Christianity palatable to the modern mindset. His whole purpose was to teach and write in such a way that those who did not believe and had an anti-supernatural bias, those who did not believe in miracles and all those things, could understand Christianity. Carl Henry was a leader in our country of evangelicalism in the church. He was someone that many people looked to in our country. He was sort of a figurehead for those that believed in the Bible and the way that Christianity had always been historically expressed. One time there was a conference in which Karl Barth was the main speaker. It was held at Georgetown University in the mid-20th century. And he spoke, and Bart was this towering intellect. And after he gave his address, there was a time for a question and answer. And of course, nobody wanted to ask a question because they were sitting in the presence of a man who was esteemed highly all over the world. Well, Carl Henry decided he was going to ask a question. So he stepped up to the microphone and he said, Dr. Bart, given all of our modern technology and capabilities... If I were to go to the tomb as Jesus was resurrected and shortly after his resurrection, and I had uh, the ability to take a picture with him, interview him, get his autograph, what would happen? Karl Barth was furious with the question. And Karl Barth responded and said, what, what's your name again? Oh, yes, Carl Henry, Christianity Yesterday to which the entire crowd roared with laughter, roared with laughter. Carl Henry leaned into the microphone and said, Christianity yesterday, today, and forever. You see, the point that Carl Henry is driving home to us and the point that we need to understand is that without understanding and believing in the historical, factual truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there is no Christianity. Without believing that Jesus bodily rose from the dead, factually, historically true, such that you could have actually taken a picture, gotten his autograph, and interviewed him in his own voice without the factual truth of the resurrection of Jesus, there is no such thing as Christianity. We, we, we might as well not have gotten up for the 8.30 service this morning. We could have gone to eat together somewhere, but this would have been pointless. What I want you to understand as we look at this text is simply two things. I want you to see, first of all, that Jesus is risen. Look at what it says in verse 6. You have the angel saying there to the women. 
He is not here. Don't you love that? He is not here. He is risen. Look, here is where he was. Here is where he laid down. He's not here anymore. He's risen. Even as in verse 7, just as he told you. You see, Jesus predicted that this was going to happen. If you look back in Mark's gospel to chapter 8 and chapter 9 and chapter 10, Jesus told his disciples, and he declares it for us, that he was going to suffer, he was going to die, and on the third day he was going to be raised. Jesus said it was going to happen, but nobody was expecting it. Nobody was expecting this. You know what this is like, don't you? You know what it's like when someone tells you something, they tell you a truth, and you hear it, but you're not really listening until much later? You know what I mean? You ever had that happen? Children, you ever had that happen to you? Your parents tell you something, and, they hear, and you hear it, but you're not really listening until much later? We have these experiences in our lives all the time. You see, all the stressful things that happen in your life, all the stressful things that happen all the way up to the point where you are in your life right now, all the things that happen in your life that really stress you out such that you talk to one of your friends and they tell you, it's going to be okay, right? And you've heard it, you've heard what they've said before, but you hadn't really listened. And you've gotten all stressed up and worked up, and then you go and talk to someone and they just tell you, look, it's going to be okay. And in five minutes, sometimes it is. Sometimes it takes five days, sometimes it takes five months, sometimes it takes five years, sometimes it takes far more, but you know what it's like to have something told to you and you hear it, but you don't really listen. You see, Mark is listening for us and he is listening for us and wants us to understand, he's emphasizing all of these eyewitness accounts. Look at what he says. Look how the women are mentioned three times. Chapter 15 and verse 40 tells you that the women were there at the crucifixion. They were looking on Jesus, as verse 40 tells you, from a distance. Verse 47, they were there. They saw where Jesus was laid. Chapter 16 and verse 1, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome, they bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. They traveled on Sunday there to see the body of Jesus. Mark wants you to look at this and understand that these are people that saw Jesus. They were there when he was crucified. They were there when the tomb was picked out. They were there when they laid Jesus in the tomb and they were there the very next day. They were there on Sunday. Now, you might wonder, well, what's the significance of this? Why does this really matter? Mark is trying to tell you, look, if you were alive when this was going on, when Mark's gospel was originally delivered, you could have gone and talked to these women. You could have asked them questions. You could have cross-examined. You could have explored what they saw. You could have asked them anything. Mark is trying to press this home. This is a real story. It really happened. It literally happened because it's not a legend. It's not hearsay. It's not a fabrication. This is not how you would fabricate a lie. No one trusted women in the first century. They weren't viewed as, you know, equal. 
If you were trying to fabricate a story, you wouldn't substantiate the story with people that were marginalized in the culture. And oh, by the way, not to go down this rabbit trail, but no one has ever thought more highly of women than God Almighty. No one has any higher view of a woman than Christianity. The resurrection itself, God wants you to understand, is based upon the eyewitness accounts of women, among other people, but first of all, of women. Mark says, go ask them, interrogate them, question them, it's true. There are lots of movements that have gone on in our culture, just like in the first century, and many of them just collapse. You know this? Think about it for a moment. Think about Mark Zuckerberg. You might not know that name. The guy that came up with Facebook with some of his friends, right? Mark Zuckerberg, so famous, so popular. Now look at Facebook. It's basically marginalized. You might still use it a lot. Most young people don't at all. He was viewed as this towering person that had this incredible idea. Five years later, Yeah, not so much. Think of other things in our culture. U.S. soccer. During the World Cup, we were all in, weren't we? Now, not so much. How about let's bring this a little closer to home. Chipotle. (laughs) You know that restaurant in town? People have been lining up outside that door for weeks. By Christmas, it's just going to be another restaurant. The reason I'm mentioning this to all of us is to think about how much we get caught up in the next craze. You understand? We just go from one thing to the next, whether it's food, whether it's Facebook, whether it's communication, whatever it is. But there's someone who spoke rough less than a hundred days from when the resurrection happened. His name was Gamaliel. The account is recorded for us in Acts chapter 5. Less than a hundred days from my calculations, if I'm right. And people are wondering, what in the world are we going to do with this message of the resurrection of Christ? What are we going to do with the truth that his disciples are beginning to declare this message? Remember, at first, they didn't even believe it. They didn't understand. They weren't expecting it. Just like us, we are told things over and over and over. And we hear them, we hear them, but we're not really listening. But then eventually it dawns on us. And we realize how true it really is. And it changes us. We grow. We mature. Right? Less than a hundred days after the resurrection, when everyone was wondering, what are we going to do with this message of the truth that Jesus is alive? The governing officials were beating Jesus' disciples. And in this meeting of all of these authority figures... This man named Gamaliel comes forward, and you know what he says? He says, look, there's been a whole lot of movements, and then he lists a couple. Do you remember these guys? Do you remember them? Do you remember how popular Judas was? He had this incredible following, and you know what happened? He died. Judas died, and you know what happened after him? You know what happened to his movement? You know what happened to his message? Yeah. It just kind of 
faded out. But gentlemen, Gamaliel said, if this is from God, you cannot stop it. If this message of the resurrected Christ is from God, You cannot stop it. You can't stop it with force. You can't stop it with policy. And you cannot stop it by overwhelming people with numbers. It doesn't happen. It cannot happen if this is from God. So beware. Because not only if it's from God, you can't stop it. But if you try to stop it, you might even find yourself fighting and contending against God. Could you imagine being in that room when he said that? I mean, even if they didn't believe, as many of them were there, did not believe. In the end, even the most hardened atheist, the most committed agnostic, I don't really think in their heart of hearts, if they're willing to admit it and be honest, they don't want to try to fight God. Beloved, this movement has been going for years and years and years and years and years. It's based on the truth that Jesus is alive. And if you're here this morning and you don't believe in the resurrection, you don't believe in the bodily resurrection, the historical fact of the truth of the resurrection of Jesus, if you don't believe in that, and even if you're here this morning and you do believe in the resurrection, You are working with people all of the time. You are living around people every day who do not believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus. And what I want to ask you is, if you believe in that and you get the chance to talk to others, or if you're here and you don't believe, how in the world can you explain the flourishing of the church for 2,000 years? across every culture, almost to every language, on every continent in the world. If the resurrection isn't true, how in the world can you account for the reality of the church, for the reality of the bride for which Jesus died? Because it has exploded all over the world. Do you realize that? Jesus is alive. He is risen indeed. Here's the second thing. If it's true that Jesus is alive, and he is, then I want you to know that everything is going to be okay. It really is. Everything is going to be okay. Look at what the text tells you. It's going to be okay because Jesus is really after your heart. Look at this. Listen to this in verse 7. Go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee, and there you will see him just as he told you. Jesus is after your heart. He says in verse 7, go tell the disciples and Peter. He tells them in verse 7, I will see you. Now to really think about that, think about what that would mean. Why would Jesus single out Peter? Why wouldn't he just say, go tell my disciples? Why does he single out Peter? Well, maybe you've forgotten Let's remember Peter's last few hours. Let's remember the last 14 hours of Peter's life, if that. Here was the last 14 hours of Peter's life in a nutshell. Peter was told by Jesus 
that his disciples, that Peter and the rest of the disciples, Jesus is telling them this, that they are going to fall away. They're going to run. They're going to hide. And you know what Peter says? I will not. I won't do it. I'll follow you anywhere, Jesus. I'll even go to death. You know what Jesus' response is? Actually, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. Imagine, imagine how perplexing and frustrating, perhaps, that would have been for Peter to hear that. Here's a guy who was relying on his own strength and his own capabilities. I'm going to be just fine. I would never deny you. I will follow you to death. I'll even die for you, Jesus, so that you don't have to. Oh, well, actually, Peter, not only is that not true, but you're going to deny me three times. Immediately after that, in Mark's account, they, Jesus takes the disciples, Peter, James, and John. They go into the garden. They start praying. Jesus goes off a little further and separates himself from those three. And as Jesus is praying, guess what's happening? Yeah, Peter's sleeping. Peter was sleeping when he should have been praying. Jesus comes back and talks to Peter and the other disciples, and he kind of singles out Peter, and he's like, Peter, can't you, can't you just stay awake a little while and pray with me? Can't you just stay awake a little while? Peter had just said that he wouldn't deny Jesus, and Jesus said, you're going to scatter. Peter just said, no, I'm going to die. I'm going to die, Jesus. No, you're not. You're actually going to deny me three times. Jesus takes Peter with him to pray, and Peter can't even stay awake. Following the prayer, the men come to take Jesus and arrest him. And Peter, you can imagine if you'll get into the story, Peter probably thought to himself, here's my chance. I've gotten rebuked twice, and I fell asleep when I should have been praying. Here's my chance. The guards come. I'm going to take my sword out, and I'm going to kill this guy who's going to take my Savior. He probably was swinging for the servant's head and missed and cut off his ear. And then he gets rebuked for that. Following that, Peter does deny Jesus three times. And the last time that Peter sees Jesus, actually their eyes meet. As soon as Peter denies Jesus three times, the rooster crows and their eyes meet. Peter felt the incredible shame and guilt, and he wept. And here's Jesus telling them, look, Go tell my disciples and Peter. The angel says to them, go tell the disciples and Peter. This is teaching us something profoundly, profoundly true about the gospel. This is giving us really good teaching. This is giving us good doctrine. Jesus is really after your heart, and you've got to understand this. You've got to think about this in a very, very deep way. Jesus didn't tell his disciples Look, if they just straighten up, I'll have them. Jesus didn't tell his disciples when they straighten up, they will be mine. Jesus didn't tell his disciples if they just get their stuff together. Jesus didn't tell his disciples if they make the first move, I'll respond accordingly. Jesus doesn't tell his disciples if they approach me, I will come to them. Jesus doesn't tell his disciples if they're really ready this time, if they're really ready, if they're really ready to be committed, I'll have them. You know, those are all of our responses typically, aren't they, in our relationships? Jesus doesn't say that at all. See, he's teaching us the truth 
of grace. And oftentimes, we don't view the gospel as all that gracious. Most of the time, we live as if the gospel is something like, well, I guess I need to come to Christ, but if I... I really see and think that I don't need Jesus that much. That sin is really just something in my life that kind of shows my weaknesses. And I really think that Christianity is just this, just this truth for like really, really strong people that have this iron clad will. And they just get their stuff together and they just do everything that's right and salvation is really for the strong. And they basically live as if, well, you know, if they sin, the result of sin jeopardizes their standing before God. And so therefore, oftentimes we live with this constant fear that I really haven't given everything to Jesus. And so what we end up thinking is what really needs to happen in my life and what the real message of the gospel is, is that I need to get real serious and I need to start making radical decisions in my life. And I just need to be all in. Oftentimes that's how the gospel is presented and that's how we live. And the truth is, is that the gospel is really by grace. The truth is, is that not only is entering into a relationship with Jesus by grace, but our growth in our walk with Jesus is also by grace. It comes by admitting our weaknesses and our sins and our failures, not only to come into the kingdom, but also in growing. And in admitting and turning from our sin, it actually shows that we have the gospel. In admitting our failures and in admitting our weaknesses, it actually shows that the gospel is taking root and has taken root in our lives. Acknowledging our sin and turning from it doesn't earn God's favor, nor does it keep his favor. It shows that we have it. Believing in him doesn't show that we're earning God's favor. It doesn't show that we're trying to keep his love. Believing in him shows that he has loved us already. Following his commands and obeying him is not because we're trying to get God's love and earn his favor. It also is showing that we have it and that he loves us so much that we are freed to obey, not because we're trying to get anything from him, but because we have him already. It doesn't promote laziness at all. There's nothing like being in a relationship where someone loves you unconditionally. That doesn't make you want to contradict them. It makes you want to be honest and truthful and follow them. Obedience shows that we have the love of God and that He is at work in our lives. Jesus is after our hearts. He's after Peter's heart. He knows that Peter is going to want to run. He knows that Peter's last look at him was full of shame for Peter and guilt. 
And he wants Peter to know that I am not leaving you out there, Peter. I'm coming for your heart. I was raised, Peter, so that you might know my grace and know that I love you and forgive you. And that you don't have to think that the result of your sin has jeopardized your standing before God. I want you to know, Peter, that your belief in me and trust in me shows that I have already loved you, that I've died for you, and I was raised from the dead for you. Not only is Jesus after your heart, but there's another reason why everything is going to be okay. And it's that Jesus is reshaping our lives by the resurrection. He tells them to go, verse 7, go and tell the disciples, go and make it known. You see, the resurrection tells us that the power of God has been unleashed on the world. The power of God has been unleashed on the world. And as hard as this is to wrap our minds around, I'm right there with you. As hard as it is to wrap our minds around what I'm about to say, it's true. We can scoff at death. There's a reason why we sang that song earlier. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? Because Jesus is alive, you can scoff at death. Yes, through tears. Yes, you can hate death. Yes, you can hate the consequences of sin. That's all true. In saying that you can scoff at death, in no way is it saying that we should become stoic and not cry or weep or mourn when our loved ones die. But the fact that Christ is alive means that death doesn't get the final say. It means that death doesn't win. Do you understand that? It means that you can mock the power that people think and you think death has. It doesn't have any power anymore. The sting of death has been taken out. Death is but the last step toward you being with your Savior forever. The other thing that's here in understanding that Jesus is reshaping our lives is not only reorienting us to what's real about death, it's also to help us understand how powerful this is. Look at verse 8. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Isn't that amazing? Now, don't take this fear as like they were afraid that they were going to get zapped or something. It's not that at all. There's this mixture of awe and there's this mixture of wonder. They weren't afraid they were going to be zapped. They were awestruck. Deep down, they had this sense that there was something extraordinary that had just happened. As a matter of fact, in Mark's gospel, whenever he brings up this idea of afraid, it's always tied to people who are understanding the supernatural power of God. It happened in chapter 4 when Jesus calmed the waves and the storm. The people were afraid because they knew that they had been observing and experiencing the power of God. 
This is not the fear where they are terrified at God or terrified of Jesus. This is the fear that invokes awe and wonder. And as we live our lives, you see, this is what happened. Every day, we have this all the time. I am no different from you at this point. Every day we live our lives and we, we are constantly getting information, right? And we either get new information and it's for us to understand. Or we're taking the information that we know and we're beginning to use it. Does that make sense? But I want you to understand that the resurrection is not just to be understood. It's not just for us to live by. The resurrection actually is far bigger than either of those two categories. The resurrection is actually what promotes and causes awe and wonder to exist in our lives. We can't just understand the resurrection. We can't just live by the truth of the resurrection. The resurrection gives us just sheer wonder. It helps us to understand that we can live our lives and we can actually be ready to be amazed. How many of you live lives based on fear of what you think might happen, maybe? The resurrection is telling you that you can anticipate amazement. It tells you that you can actually have wonder in your life again. That not everything in your life is just about getting new information and figuring how to use it most efficiently, as important as that may be. The resurrection says you can live your life expecting amazement, expecting wonder. It enables you to live knowing that there's something out there that's unknown. And knowing that that unknown is what God is going to do. Is God involved in the regular things of our lives? Yes. Does he care about the mundane things of our lives? Yes. But are there going to be things in our lives that we cannot fundamentally explain? Answers to prayer, friendship, love, hope. Yes, it's all there because of the resurrection. It means that you don't have to try to be in control. The resurrection actually frees you to live. It frees you to enjoy your life. It frees you to hope. It frees you to hope and enjoy your life even in the midst of sorrow. And not only that, it frees you to pour out your lives. If you can scoff at death and you can laugh at death and you can actually believe that death has lost its sting, and that death has no victory, and that death can't win. If you actually believe that, then you can pour out your life. And it means that you can love your families, you can love your friends, you can work as hard as you can within reason at your jobs, keeping in tension all of your other responsibilities. And it means you can do all of this with hope. It means you can love God without fear. It means that you can love your neighbor without worry. It means that you can love where you live because you believe in the resurrection. The resurrection frees us from the illusion that we can control and predict and really solve anything. And I bet if you will think and reflect for a few moments, maybe this week sometime, you will be able to think of things in your life 
in which they wouldn't have happened and couldn't have happened unless God acted in an incredibly unpredictable and unexpected way. And that doesn't always mean that you're going to get what you want. It just means that you can live knowing that the resurrection is true and you can expect to be amazed and you can enjoy your life. You don't have to live by fear. The resurrection is the assurance that everything is going to be okay. You don't need to hold on tightly to life. You don't need to clutch it as if it's all there is. Because the truth is that through the resurrection, Jesus has laid hold of you. Not only now, but for eternity. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the truth of the resurrection. Without it, there is no message, there is no gospel, there is no hope, there is no sense of wonder, there is no sense of amazement, there could be shock, there might be unexpected things, but no real deep wonder and amazement and and hope. God, we live so much for the now. Our lives are often motivated by fear and sometimes even terror of what we can't see and what we think we can't control. We thank you. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for telling us that everything is going to be okay. That you are after our hearts and you are at work reshaping our lives so that we would enjoy lives our lives, that we would love our God and that we would love the people that you put us in contact with, that you would compel us to love the places in which we live. Lord, help us to live with this resurrection power. Help us this week to be amazed at your presence in our lives and the power with which you oversee everything. Help us to trust you and know that your gospel is of grace. That to admit our sin and weakness is not wrong. That to admit our sin and our weakness and our need is to claim that you are at work in our lives. To obey you is not to try to get your favor. It's to show that we have it. Help us, Lord, for your glory's sake. Amen.